Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's guest is Nana Visitor, who shares memories of her family and career. She also shares a deeply personal traumatic event that I feel is inappropriate for young listeners. This is Gates McFadden Investigates. Who do you think you are? Nana Visitor and I have a lot in common. We're both dancers, though she's far more skilled than me. We're both choreographers. We're both actors. We were both Star Trek regulars. And of course, both of us are mothers. Nana is a seeker. She's curious. She's disciplined. She always is ready to do the hard work. But she's also someone who loves to have fun. She cooks. She's generous. And the only woman I know who has a parrot for a bodyguard. Hi, Nana. Hi, Gate. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you. It's great to see you, even through plexiglass. That's you look right. gorgeous. So do you. And you Thanks. do have, you just have the world's best smile. I Thanks, love Kate. it. It's cool. You know, I was driving here today, and I, I just kept thinking about how hard it's been for me to process the pandemic, the fires, the election. There's so much happening. And I find I'm caught between wanting to know and not being able to process everything that's out there so that it, it, it kind of can take over, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And in the same way that I have loved having time during the pandemic, especially in the beginning, where I just was so happy doing nothing and dreaming and with no agenda at all. It was such freedom that I remember all those times in my life that I've had that freedom. And I realize how hard it is sometimes to carve it out of our lives. Do you ever feel that way? Absolutely, I do. Um, I also have struggled with uh, boredom uh, of not knowing how to use my time or what to... For so many years, I had almost a... A, a, a very polite um, relationship with myself. You know that voice in your head? I didn't know what to do with that voice. I didn't know what to do when I was by myself. I wasn't good at it. I was always with family or always working. Something was always occupying my mind or my body. So I, it's, it took me a long time to make friends with myself. And in Joy, my company. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm sometimes annoyed with my company, but I'm never bored. We both came back from the cruise and I got COVID like the day I got home. I'm sure it was COVID. I ended up not having a super serious case, thank goodness, but I was really sick and it was on and off for three weeks and you had gotten something on board even. I was sick that first week and you know, when we got on the ship, it seemed like it was something, a virus coming, but it wasn't with us yet. 
I, I had that feeling. So it was like, oh, I've got some kind of virus. Not that one, of course, but a virus. But I remember feeling like there was cement in my veins. I right. couldn't move. Right. And I had a fever and the chills and all that stuff. And right now, I can't smell. So pretty Interesting. sure. I never got tested, but pretty sure that's what it was. Yeah, I, I know. Well, for me... I felt after the first week, oh, good, I, I, I escaped the, the bad thing, and I felt great for a couple of days, and then all of a sudden I couldn't move again, and I mm. ached, and, and mm-hmm. I had coffee and stuff. But it was in the third week that there was one night in the middle of the night that I woke up, and I really had trouble. It was like someone was sitting on my chest. Oh, and, that's so scary. And that was the first time that I got really scared. Oh, Gates. And then it, it wasn't there, and it hasn't come back since, knock on wood. So, But it, anyway, so after that... What happened to me was I was so happy that I hadn't gotten it badly, right? So I I would be sitting there, and sometimes it, the house was so quiet. And and then, if you know, you could start to feel anxious. And then all of a sudden, if you just stay in that, why am I anxious? And you just kind of feel it, you know, and you let the emotions run over you. Mm. I found that I would just, my eye would be drawn to something, any number of things. It was so random. But if I just allowed myself to be open to it, I would actually start to get interested in something. And I'd start to go, oh, wow, what? Now, has that always been like this? Or is that a new leaf? Wait a minute. Or, you know, oh, that bird comes twice a day. Yes, it does. Right there. You know, something. And and I found myself just picking up books that I hadn't seen that were beloved books. And I hadn't seen them for years. And just randomly opening them up and reading a chapter and putting it away. And Joy. <laughs> that, well, you were naturally doing what uh, people will tell you how to get out of a panic attack, how to deal with anxiety. First of all, emotions last actually 90 seconds. But if you attach meaning and feelings to it, right. uh, you can make it last a lifetime. Uh, anxiety is like that. And by getting interested you're engaging your prefrontal cortex. You're you're talking in the language of the prefrontal cortex, which is our reasoning right, part of our right. brain. And the minute you go, oh, look at that bird, you've taken it out of the limbic system where all these ancient, you know, fears, you're able to lift yourself out of that system, out of the ancient part of our fear. Exactly. And it makes sense that we're, we're as fearful as we are. Our brain is interested in staying alive. Yeah. So everything is a potential danger, everything. And we have to use our reasoning abilities to live a life that isn't just fear-based. One of my favorite poets is Edna St. Vincent Millay. Mm. So I picked up her book and I, th- I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm not making this up, but I think she's the one who said something like, life isn't one damn thing after another. It's the same damn thing over and over. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's so true sometimes because yep. we get in our circles of fear, anxiety, whatever mm. it is, right? And instead of just being curious and, and, and like going, well, now why am I feeling this now? You know, I keep feeling this. I feel great. And then all of a sudden this comes up. You know, what is that? And not shutting it down, which so many people do. Exactly. That shutting it down your, your emotions. And I find the connection between the mind, the emotions, and the body is such a strong connection for me. And we both are women who grew up moving and being taught movement. And then I 
I know that 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 must have influenced you being growing up. You know, your mother was one of the best ballet teachers in New York City, right? And she was she was weirdly hooked into what we know about how the brain body connection works. Today, we know, like in the last 30 years, MRIs changed everything. Back then, um, she was really, well, she stopped teaching, I'd say, in the 90s. So she was active from the 40s to the 90s. That's she, a long time. It's a long time. She would do wild things like this, Gates. She would, and and these were people on Broadway, professional ballet dancers. They were experts at what they were doing. And at the bar doing plies, she would suddenly say, sing. She'd have the pianist, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. Oh, fantastic. And she'd say, everybody sing. Wow. Everybody sing. So she was engaging our cognitive brain so that our bodies could do what they knew so well to do, and that voice in our head wouldn't get in our way. Yep. There's a psychologist, I, I'm blanking on her name, but she she talks about working with singers, and she makes them stand on their head and sing their songs, because what happens is they forget all of their uptightness and, and the things that constrict when they're singing in the way they're supposed to, and they suddenly the sound just pours out because we're not holding it back. Right. I never had a teacher like your mother when I was young. That would have been fantastic. Oh, you would have loved her. I bet I would have. I remember the day I said, show me how she teaches. And you got up and you you channeled your mother and you were like, so nurturing. I, I didn't come from that. That was not what no. I came from. But that's so important. No, so many, so many teachers of every kind, not just of dance, but, you know, every teacher that tries to squeeze you and punch you into a box to fit the size that she's been taught is the right thing. Right. Is very limiting. If there's a teacher that says, explore your energy, accept your body, which my mother did. Find the joy, send your energy out. It was like, oh, I, people People <laughs> were devotees of hers. I rented a studio when I was working on the cabaret show. And in this studio, the woman who um, owned it, she would teach ballet to little girls. And I would come to, to rehearse and I'd be so worried about, oh, I don't think this is any good, and, da, 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 and I'd be just self-criticizing myself all the way there, park and go up. And then I would look in, and at the end of this class, she'd have boxes of scarves and stuff, and the, she just, it was a freedom ballet class. Mm. And these little girls were amazing. And yeah. uh, I thought the only thing that was wrong is I wanted to see little boys in there because it was a free Freedom class is what it really was. It was yeah. about move and be free and 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 now see if you can do this. And tell me about um, your childhood a little bit because I find it amazing. The it was a childhood that I could only dream of of having a father. And I have seen the video of your father doing a combination across the room, and I fell off my chair. He was. Such a beautiful dancer, and and that's when he was in his early seventies. So he was he was so fluid. He was so beautiful. He looked like he was forty, maybe. Yeah. When was the first time that you remember watching him move like that? I remember seeing. I was five years old, and I was at some. There was like a dinner, and then my father danced with other people. Um, I, I don't know what the event was, but I remember that he. He had incredible ballon, which simply means that he could jump 
really high, like an athlete. <laughs> wow. And I remember that his feet were over my head. I was five years old, wow. but he was jumping near my table. He was, and my mother trained him uh, from the age of 19. He was just animal energy when he danced. It was, it was very exciting and it was, but you know, with that came, um, it, it was, it was a childhood filled with just, I could absorb all this knowledge. Dinners weren't about what did you do at school? Dinners mm. were about my mother and father arguing about pirouettes and she, <laughs> seriously, and, and she'd say, no, no, Bob, get up, get up. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Oh, my and God. He'd be, and they would be passionate and fighting about this, and it's about dance. But that's, they were artists. Wow. Artists. How fabulous. So I was in yep. the audience as a child. Yeah, I want to know, what did they each feel about the pirouette? You don't even remember, probably. But Oh, the- I remember my mother talking about the dynamics the dynamics, she talked about the forces of opposition up and down and, and, and the parts of the body. And it was, she was very, she was weird. She was oh, really weird. I bet I would have loved her. No, oh, yeah. And, and your father, like, w- w- was it pulling away with something he thought was rigid or? Uh, no, I think that he wanted to, it was his, um, he wanted to go with more of a traditional idea of dance oh, always. Really? And, but really, I think it was just, you know, part of their foreplay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and the fact that he liked to push push her. Yeah. And push her ideas. He always made her a better teacher. She could never sit back because he'd be there asking questions, going, why? What? Show me. Interesting. Yeah. Now what's your favorite not generalized memory, but do you have like a specific favorite memory with your mom? Are a lot, but to save on babysitters, they were, you know, my mother taught ballet. My father was a dancer, not a lot of money. And then he became a choreographer and he worked with Bob Fosse and right. Jerry Robbins and all these amazing people and was a choreographer in his own right as well. So instead of getting a babysitter while she had class, I sat in class from tiny age. And Mm. I just sit and I'd be so bored uh, (laughs) that I would start watching the dancers and asking myself questions. Why is she better than she is? Why does he look, why, why am I watching her? And the her that I'd be watching most of all was Gwen Verdon. So, yeah. And so I'd study her and go, what? Amazing. Such an education, but bored sitting there with my kitten um, she'd let me bring my well, cat. See, that's brilliant that she would let you bring a kitten. Yeah. Believe me, you would have had a rougher time that's had you right. not had something cuddly. So that's smart. That's that right. is very smart. That's right. Um, in a basket, I had my cat. Oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I always kept my little kittens in baskets too. I take. I, I I took my first when I was first teaching. Um, no, actually, it wasn't my very first teaching job, but it was one of them. I used to take in my little sports car my little kitten in a basket, and I would take it to my classes. I love that image. Wait, I've just got to think, what kind of what kind of car was it? I've well, got to get it all. Of course, it was just similar to yours, but it yeah. was a red Spider yeah. Sport yeah. convertible. I love it. And uh, that, was, that was the car that my mother had been uh, in the car leasing business after she had been fired from this banking position, and, and she just really hated the, the whole scene at that time. It was nothing but really kind of... Course men 
uh, who would go to strip clubs at lunch and stuff. Oh, of course. But anyway, she became a manager in, in Ohio. She made good friends with a man who was the Honda and uh, Fiat for, right. you know, the United States. And so he got me when I was, because I was so poor when I was at Lecoq's, and she got a deal that we bought this car for $2,000, <gasps> and oh. including the shipping over. Oh. And so I remember I was to go to Zurich to pick it up, so I took multiple trains and buses to get to Zurich. I didn't fly to Zurich. I get to this place. It was just, I had never seen anything like the mountains of Zurich, and it was really awesome. And when they showed me that car, I almost started you know, I was afraid to touch it. It was so beautiful. And I remember driving, I had to drive back to Paris. Oh, good God. And I was in the mountains and I was terrified holding that wheel that I was going to damage this car. I wasn't worried about me going over the cliff. I was worried <laughs> was about the damaging car. the car. I go back to Paris. I unpack my bags. It's the first time I've ever done this, you know, and I was exhausted by the stress and the driving. And I wake up the next morning and I'm going to go out to the car and I can't find my keys. And I have parked right in front of the metro, and I go running out, and I had left the keys in the back trunk of the car, just <gasps> sticking out. Oh, God. <laughs> can you oh, imagine? God. Oh, God. I don't think I ever told my mother that, but I mean, can you imagine? And I thought, oh, my Lord, that is so, I am such a space cadet, and I could have just ruined this whole beautiful dream, you know, but anyway. How long did that take you, Zurich to Paris? Oh, God. It felt like forever, okay? Mm-hmm. But it had to be like, for me, it was like nine hours, I think, something that's, like that's, that. That's a lot in I a think new it was, car. But, you know, I, I don't know. I could be, it could be two hours. <laughs> As I said, I'm a real space cadet, okay? <laughs> so, so tell me now, like you told me about the birthday party with your dad. I want to go back to, did you, what in a private moment with your dad, I mean, did he read to you at night or they were always working at night? Um, yeah, my father wasn't there. He was at a show or when he was choreographing, watching a show. He wasn't there a lot. My mother was. Okay. Yeah. And, and did you, but but like if you woke up in the morning, it was your mother who was up, not your dad. Nah, he slept late. Right. Yeah, he wasn't, wow. he, he wasn't that kind of father. When you were older and he was alive, did you hang out? Always, always. We, if we were in the same city, we had a we had a habit that he would come over for high tea. He was so skinny, always, not mm. in a bad way, in a good way. Oh, he looked gorgeous. He looked great, but he ate like a horse always. Even, <laughs> even when he was older and not dancing anymore. I mean, I'm talking ninety always. So he ate a million times. If I ate as much as he did, it's unbelievable. So he would come for tea. And that would mean little sandwiches and cookie. And, and you cake. would make those. And I would make those. Oh. And we'd sit down for a couple of hours. Uh, if I wasn't working, we had that habit. So, yeah, we did. Did you get nervous when he would watch you do, let's say, 42nd Street or something? Did you uh, ask for coaching or anything? The first time I worked with him, I was 17. So, um, it, no, not at all. I was I was not his daughter in the workplace, I was another dancer, and uh, he wasn't my father. He was my boss, hmm. and I got really used to making that um, distinction, and he did too, to the point where some people never knew that I was related to him in that's the show. In, that's incredible. Yeah. I it, mean— It's the only way I could do it. Yeah, I but, think you're right. 
I never got nervous. I would ask my parents' advice. I would say, look, when I went into Chicago, um, I felt very left alone because, my God, they'd been, they they would put in, you know, a, a million women uh, in all these different uh, companies. And it, you know, you didn't get a lot of hand No, you were on your own. To go yeah. into, you know, a, a, a major show on Broadway. So I definitely, I remember having them both come in and coach me on uh, on the dance. How great. Oh. I mean, geez, that's so, so cool. Yeah. It's terrifying when you get put in. I mean, I, I had, for Cloud Nine, <sighs> again, I had... Like two days rehearsal, that was it. And the rest, you were on your own. And you, you know. I, <laughs> right. I remember right. I was in tears backstage during intermission as I was getting changed in my next costume because I just was like, I, you know, I was so worried about whether I was able to do the performance. And then what was really funny is the show, I, I didn't realize I needed to trust the show. And the show was so brilliant Mm. And Tommy Toon's direction, Carol Churchill's words were so brilliant. I just had to do my best, and the show would still carry itself, you know. And then I could get better and better. And and it it really was every week I'd learn something that that one would learn in rehearsal. But it was just so right. gorgeous to keep growing in something. That's even when I started a show from the beginning, you know, with the normal rehearsals and going out of town. I always found it took me six months to really know what I was doing. Yeah, I think that's, that sounds right to me because you, you're you worried about so many things in the beginning and then as you, it's sort of, it's no longer about you and it's, it's so much bigger than you and it is the most yeah. gorgeous feeling yeah. when it is no longer about you. Yes. And I think that's even true, I don't know if you feel this, but I think that's even true with the Trek world. I think I, you know, we did a panel the other night um, for Biden-Harris and what I was struck with was how amazing just the group of actors who were there. And then I know you're going to be doing one with, with Kate tonight, and mm-hmm. I might be joining in on oh, that. Oh, good. I'm not sure if I can, but I'm, I'm trying to. And I'm, I'm realizing, boy, they knew what they were doing when they picked people because there really are some amazing people, especially some incredible women in, in the Star Trek world. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, they seem to feel free to... Uh, choose from a much bigger pool than network TV ever yeah. did, or even films, so that you know our uh, how we how we are. There, there are a lot more shades to us than than some. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to, you have a brother and a sister, mm-hmm. and when you were little, I know I dealt with sibling rivalry in my life. Absolutely. I, I actually had two brothers. One has died. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Um, Paris died uh, in 2000. Um, I was the baby. Uh, my sister, six years older. Paris was 15 years older in 10, Zan, six. And then I came along. The doctors, at, when my mother said, I think I'm pregnant again, she was 42 so the doctors at that, you know, it was 1956, they said, mm, no, don't think so. That's, you have a tumor growing and we're going to have to, and she was like, no, I know I'm pregnant. I know it's weird, but I think I am. Wow. So I was kind of the accident. 
And then I was mama's little precious baby. And no one, I don't know why, but no one seemed to appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, I can't imagine why not. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So there was definitely that. That's funny. Yeah. That's really funny. I do notice that there's a difference with kids who've been raised with siblings as opposed to someone who's never had to compete for the parents' attention. I I think certainly younger children look at their older siblings and learn lessons and go, okay, I'm not going to do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) But did you also see things that I am going to do it that way? That's really cool. Or... Uh, absolutely. I uh, One thing for sure, my brother Ian was an actor, and uh, he was in L'Histoire du Soldat that went to Italy. And I remember watching um, rehearsals for that uh, or watching him play action in West Side Story when I was very young going, well, so I was probably around 10. And I went, that's I mean, I actually chose what I thought was good on stage from the way Ian performed. I went, that's what I like. He was like my father, mm. uh, a live wire, a dangerous energy. Mm. You went, is that an actor or is that the way the person is? Is he going to just suddenly leap at somebody? And, <laughs> you know, what's going to happen? It was it so was, present. Yeah. It's so present and so. Uh, alive. And that's what I, I formed it then, what I thought, that's powerful because it it was visceral for me. I felt it in L'Histoire du Soldat when he was getting kicked around by the devil. I felt, I remember having to be taken from the, from the rehearsal room because I was crying so hard. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, so did you always want to grow up to be a performer that you can remember or not? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, I went to, uh, this private school that, you know, did not, I, I was actually bullied at this school because my parents were performers and we didn't have money and There's everybody such a else. bias. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my God! This yeah. was a very fancy Manhattan school, right? So um, I, I didn't, I, I aspired to do anything but. But at fourteen, and I, I was a terrible student. I didn't do well. I had anxiety. I wasn't happy at all. If I could feel sick to miss school, I would do it. Um, and then I got the lead in Bye Bye Birdie. Wow, that does it. And 
suddenly everybody started to look at me differently. Mm. They went, oh, you on stage. Oh, my God. And I started to feel better about myself, and I started to find my own ways of learning. And I did have my own ways of learning. And I got used to the idea, it may be harder work for me, but I can do the hard work and come up on top. And it was it was a, a happy story that I found my passion with stage. And I continued to do it all through high school. I did all these um, charity shows and directed and choreographed them. And of course, I was in them as well. Um, and I got all kinds of awards and got into Princeton. I never went. I deferred for four years, but I was already working by then. So that was a tipping point for me. I found a place where I was safe to be exactly as I was and a place where I wasn't defined by my financial situation, by my hierarchy in class. I was free to be just this creature. And that's how I felt. I felt like a creature more than anything else. You wrote a piece about a woman and a cat. Can you can you describe the relationship between the cat and the woman? Well, really, it's um, it's the relationship between the ego and the self. And that was part of, I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote because it was part of my recovery from post-traumatic stress. And you write a lot when you go through uh, exposure therapy. And it really, again, it's taking things that are living in your limbic system um, and bringing it into the language of reason so that you can look at it and own it. You know, since I've known you, which has not actually been that long, I mean, we I, I would pass you and I'd see you at Star Trek events, but I didn't have any rapport with you. And I went to your house once. I know you did with your baby. Yes. I know. I, I remember that. I, I'll never forget your Me- house because I went, that is my dream house. <laughs> to have concrete <laughs> floors is my dream. <laughs> and to look like Gates and be uh-huh. so, oh my God, I completely, <laughs> I, I just went, oh yeah, that, this package. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I rem- well, I loved the idea that someone else had a child because mm. I felt so alone mm-hmm. in in the fact that you know I had this child, and at that time, no one else was bringing a child to work, and no one else. I, I think most of my cast members, except for Patrick, had their babies afterwards. Maybe when we were doing the movies, but not while we were filming the series. And I loved that you had a baby, and I really did. I was hoping for some connection that it could happen a lot, but it be, it became difficult. I mean, it wasn't an easy thing because of work schedules. Because I mean, obviously of work. Because I mean, I really I, I've started to think about the seven years I was on that show as dog years because sixteen <laughs> to twenty hours a day oh, is yeah. not a normal day. That's no, longer. That's longer. So, you know, how many, if, if you really cut it out, how many years did we spend in that world and exclusively in that world? And then if you have a child, it just becomes an impossible thing to manage. You don't have a private life. You have your child and you have work. That's right. That's it. That's it. And, and, I, and we make huge decisions based on all that, you yeah. know. And you have gone through a lot of physical trauma in your life as well as emotional. But just even something like one day you had been at my house and, and a car ran into you. And, and, you know, you had had all these problems with your neck. And I have to say you are 
so impressive to me of how fierce you are about recognizing there's a problem, doing something with it. You couldn't move your neck for a while. And then you just do things. You investigate, you figure out, okay, this is what I've got to do. This is how it's going to get better. And you are brilliant at that. And you, you really, it's fantastic. It's really um, something that, that I'm quite impressed with. And I love about you. And you know, when to say, I stop, I, I need this space for myself. I don't know, you know, stay away everybody for now. I need to do this. And then when you, when you do it, then you are generous with sharing it. And that's pretty cool. I just want to, you know, say that. It's Thank very you cool. so much. I yeah. appreciate that. Talk about, um, I know people are doing things with post-traumatic stress now. What are some of the best things that you have done to deal with various uh, traumas in your life? What worked for me was I found an incredible doctor, an incredible psychologist in New York who not only took me through exposure therapy. That doesn't always work for people. Can you talk uh, about what that is and tell people? And also, maybe sh- should we say what what one of the, the event? So when my child was two years old and I was doing the show, we had, as you know, yeah. really late hours. And I lived in Benedict Canyon. And coming home on sunset, uh, 2 a.m., uh, not many people out. And I noticed headlights. And they seemed to be following me. Um and I had this nervousness. I kept watching them, but I went, no, nah, I'm being silly. I'm, it's late and I'm tired. So I climbed up Benedict Canyon and they followed me. But then when I stopped in front of my house, they went on up the hill and uh, on this little street. So I thought, uh, I'm fine. And I started getting the things out of my car and I looked at my, I looked to open my door and there's a nine millimeter at my head. And somehow I, I drove very, I drove a couple of minutes, I, not even a couple of minutes, I drove a couple of yards and they stopped me with their car. I got out of the car and started to run and they shot at me and I, I stopped and then they had me and they put me in their car. And uh, it was a, it was a horrible night. Um, but you know, it wasn't the rape that stayed with me. It was, uh, I was constantly talking. They, they shoved me in the passenger seat leg room. And uh, they kept the, the gun at my head. It was 20 years, I still felt it on my skull. Oh, I believe it. It it took so long until I got exposure therapy to not feel the muzzle of that gun. Um, And uh, they took me, uh, we we were in, I don't know, somewhere in Beverly Hills. I kept wondering, does nobody hear this? And uh, I was, they had me tied and uh, on my knees in a bush, facing a bush, while they talked about what they were going to do with my body. They were going to dump it out uh, near Las Vegas. And I was shaking so hard. I went, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. This, this is it. This is happening. So calm yourself. Don't take them with you. This is, this is your moment. Let's go out all by ourselves. And then it didn't happen. Wow. But a part of me yeah. kept dead 
for years from right. that moment on. Right. But the thing that stayed with me was the hardest thing, Gates, was when we got back in the car, they put the gun and cocked it at my head and said, take us back to your house. How do we get back there? And I argued, I talked, I was constantly trying to make them feel my humanity. And um, I was unsuccessful. And there was one that was more, uh, I, I couldn't get through to him at all. He was vicious. Uh, and he said, stop it now, I'm going to blow your head off. And I told them how to get back. And that was my shame Wow. for because my baby was there. And they went through the house. They hogtied me and the man that I was, uh, that I had hired to be a Manny while I was at work. And he lived during the week with us. And uh, they were playing. One was up in my child's room, tearing it apart. I could hear it on the baby monitor. The other one had the gun in one hand, a cookie that I had baked that morning in another. I don't know why that stuck with me so badly, but it did. Oh, I can imagine I, those visceral things. Oh, my God. Playing with my dogs. Yeah, yeah. And it was horrible. And, and at the end of it, again, uh, they picked me up by my ropes and put me, you know, so that I was on my stomach and they picked me up by my ropes and threw me on the couch and put a pillow over my head. And I thought they don't want to see my eyes when I die. And then they were gone. And that, uh, that was it. I didn't get care for it. Really. I got drugged for it. Yeah, I got, right. you know, and none of it worked. So they, they had me on five medications, wow. uh, trying to, trying to calm myself. Did Well, it's a horrific Horrific experience, and I really, I really uh, think you're courageous to talk about it. I know the story, and to hear it again, it's just as horrific as hearing it the first time. Because, especially, you know, when I I'm looking at you right now, I mean, it's just it's unfathomable, and um, I think I'm so um, struck with that fine line between life and death. And there's something about the fact that you had the will to calm yourself. There's something that, of course, we can't control. And we can't control anything in life, right? Hmm. We can only control our breathing sometimes and not even all the time. Mm -hmm. And to try to focus on a very particular thing, I think, is one of the biggest ways our minds try to to survive, you know, because the fact that you got through that long of a night of horror and fear and dealing with it. So I think I really do want to hear, did you feel that you cut off like from your body, which so many people do, they repress Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, talk about that a little bit, just what that felt like. The, the, it could be that that's why the rape didn't have an effect on me. I left my body. I was beside myself literally and going, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just live. Get get through this. Get through this. Um, and the one time I couldn't dissociate is when it came to my child. Right. 
and that so i didn't i didn't have i was very clear that the shame of the rape was on the men not on me always great i was encouraged not to prosecute when they got the guys because it would bring shame on me and i would be the the actor that had been raped and that just didn't com- it just simply didn't <laughs> oh, compute geez. simply didn't Thank compute Thank goodness no. bravo no so they were prosecuted and they got multiple life sentences uh actually interestingly enough it was the kid what they considered kidnapping that they took me and forced me in their car that got them a really long sentence which which yeah. is good S- so when did you s- you discovered that you needed to do something else. All these other things were just pushing the repression down more. You know, if you take a lot of medication, it's going to just cut you off even more. I I was cut off. I was, and that's how I functioned. I went, uh, no one, my job isn't going to suffer. My baby isn't going to suffer. Just me. And of course, it's not like that. Uh, Of course, my baby suffered because I stopped having any connection to my real self. I was used to pushing everything down, and you just don't push bad things down. You push everything down. And uh, fear, uh, I was triggered by anything. I would go back to that shaking state over just a, a, a disagreement in a, in a parking lot. I would start shaking uncontrollably. Um, and memories of it pop up, all the typical things that have happened with post-traumatic stress. And uh, they didn't really have a name for it then. They didn't have treatment. It's only when I moved to New York uh, about six years ago uh, that I found a psychologist who did exposure therapy, and, and she worked with soldiers. And she explained to me, it doesn't always work. And sometimes it can make it worse. And I took the chance, and she was so brilliant because she didn't just take me through the therapy. She was there teaching me mindfulness, teaching me roomy poetry, teaching me about Viktor Frankl to give me uh, a a basis of how you can live with suffering, because if there's ever an example, it's Viktor Frankl. Right. teaching me about my limbic system and my sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems so that I understood, so that I, so that I could take a little bit of ownership, not only of my story through exposure therapy, but ownership of what was happening as a result of, in my brain and body, and to, to literally kill certain synapses in my brain and grow others. And that's pretty much what my play was about, too. Having to feel like it's not a literal death. I finally called the right. play Bardo because it's not a literal death. It's the death of part of you that you must kill off. Right. And you you grow in this whole other way. And exposure therapy, though, is... I'm still not totally clear. Okay. So it's eight weeks of bringing up the story and telling it to her over and over again, recording it on a little tape recorder, and that, that's what I had then, uh, and listening to it over and over again, writing it down. In every sense, you keep 
you keep putting it into words. You keep putting it into words. Which can take it out of you. It takes yeah. it okay. out of the it. hiding places yeah. in your brain. I get it. And it becomes a story that you have ownership right. of. That's brilliant. This yeah. is my story. This isn't me. It's not all in my body and brain in places that it's going to pop out without my knowing it. It's something that happened to me that I own that I can tell you about without breaking down, without feeling the feelings again. Right. Yeah, that's extraordinary. And and when so when you like I know for me when I've realized in my life, this is switching subjects um, just for a That's moment. the way my but brain think, works. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. All right. Good. <laughs> Great. I mean, it was a very powerful thing. We just, you know, I just listened to. Um, there's something like I remember that the first time when I thought I might die, um, it does really change you. And then when you survive it, I wanted to be more changed by it. But again, I think I repressed and I think mm. I did it several times in my life. Well, there were probably other things that you had to accomplish, like work and child and relationship and, you know, all these other things that keep us in the world. There's a book called The Places That Scare You. Oh, love that book. Love that book. And she has a quote that Einstein said in the beginning of one of her chapters. And I just went, this is so perfect for now. Can I just Please. share this? Einstein wrote that we humans, quote, experience ourselves, our thoughts, feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prize for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our last must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening the circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. See, I mean, it's there. That's one of the most nurturing. <laughs> that's not, that's, that's emotion, um, movement, logic, mathematics, everything. To, to find our connections during the pandemic where, you know, you wake up one day and you're feeling kind of despairing a little bit. And then how do you get yourself out of it? And it's finding connections. It's finding connections right in front of you, even if you're alone. It's finding a connection with that book, finding a connection to the wind. Uh, and if we, we get past ourselves, we can do it. It's mm -hmm. really about getting past the ego, isn't mm -hmm. it? It is. It um, is. And it's really what the, what scientists have found. It's where happiness lies. Happiness isn't in pleasure. It, it isn't. No, I agree. Happiness pleasure is, is different. Yeah, it's very different and in small doses, terrific. But really what makes us happy is to work at our full capacity at something that we have connected to have meaning with like a purpose in life. It's it's not just for us, it's for other people as well. Now you have have you ever taught? Uh no, I've just taken over from my mother's class oh, occasionally. I, I could see you being an incredible teacher. Yeah. I I would love that. Yeah. I would love that. I, I think you'd be amazing. Do you yeah. know what persona I've uh taken on and I just started it on Instagram, although I've been doing it for a while, um is Mama Nana, and that's where I 
feel the most comfortable. I want to inspire people to find out about themselves. I want to offer hope that you can figure these things out if you just get a few clues and then start your journey, start figuring it out. Um, My older son, Buster, said to me something that I found to be so true. He has, he went to Afghanistan and, uh, of course, got post-traumatic stress there. And he said, Mama, the answer isn't a silver bullet. It's silver buckshot. And that's so true. Mm. And so you have to figure out the mysteries of ourselves. Mm -hmm. What works for me isn't necessarily going to work for someone else. But if you follow the thread back into how our brains work and our bodies work, there will be something, a clue that can set you off on your journey. And that's what I feel so comfortable doing. That That's lovely. Do you think you're vain? I think, well, what I, I think I have problems with uh, my self-image, yes. I don't like looking at my face. Uh, I don't like, I, here's the thing. I don't like looking at my face on camera. I like looking at my face in the mirror uh, when I wake up in the morning. Mm. I like who mm. I am. I don't like having to adjust myself for something that I have imposed on myself as a societal need for me to look a certain way. I've struggled with that, and it's imposed on us as actors. Absolutely. I mean, from a young age. And when we grew up, it was all about how skinny can you be? Um, they would go down the line. It, the, the first thing that happens for a dance audition back in the day is they'd like, I bet they don't do this now. Uh, they would line you up at the edge of the stage and go, thank you very much, thank you very much, thank and just eliminate people based on their body type. Oh, my God. So yeah. you wanted to get through that. For You wanted the job. You, uh, you were going to be skinny. So just from that, it was like ingrained. I didn't have a skinny problem. I had the curvature of the spine problem, which took me out of the line immediately. Like when I finally felt liberated at Brandeis, where never wear makeup. I mean, I didn't grow up wearing makeup or anything. I was in Ohio. I mean, you know, the most, you'd wear lipstick to the prom. That was about it. And we had something called blush and that was it. And believe me, it didn't do much. (laughs) I still had no (laughs) eyebrows. You know what I mean? Bonnie Bell. (laughs) Yeah. Man, coming out when you first start, performing. And I really do think it was oh, LA. Yeah. It was LA for oh, me. Yeah. And all of a sudden I would go, wow, I just like look like nothing. When you don't have a lot of makeup on, you you, you kind of disappear in LA, <laughs> at least on set. It's amazing to me. Yeah. And I couldn't understand that. And I felt, I felt such a bomb. I felt in the negative way, not in the way that people say, oh, that's the bomb. I didn't yeah. mean that way. I felt like, <laughs> like, a, a, you know, the, the flotsam and jetsam that created such an insecurity. And when it, I was, when I was, was devastating out here. It's devastating. I remember being out here and, and meeting with the director for a, a, a lead in a film, and I didn't get further than sitting down. And he said, "Look, I need a pretty girl for this role, <laughs> and we both know that's not you. So thanks for coming in." Oh, Jesus. And so I associated. <laughs> 
success with what I don't have, what I'm not. I don't look like right. this image. Right. And there started to be an image that I thought I needed to fill. Right. Is instead of looking like the best version of myself, right. I had to look like somebody else entirely. I want to go back to what I said I was going to talk about, and then I didn't, but was parenting. What do you feel personally were the toughest things, the, the greatest challenges for you being a parent? I know right away. Um, one of the biggest challenges was recently. Um, maybe this morning. No. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Pretty, pretty recently. Uh, <laughs> learning that the role, not only do your children grow, but you, your mother, who you are as a mother must grow. And I was a care, uh, were caretakers when they're little. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how to leave that caretaking role mm. and grow into being a mentor. There's a the the recent Little Women. It was so beautifully directed and written because the mother in that, Marmy, in that version, listened to her children and had sympathy and was, oh, that's so hard and whatever. She never once tried to solve the problem, mm-hmm. not once. Her children, she watched, she she bore witness to her children's suffering and was there to comfort them as, as a mother, as a mentor, but didn't offer answers. And that was the hardest transition for me. That felt like killing something off in me. It's it's a crucial thing. You crucial. have you have to let them break away from you. You have to let them solve their own problems. And and it's also delicious, may I say, when you do feel that you are, are now in a mentoring role, and that you're you're thought of in in a different way. Yes. And and also, I feel mentored now by my son, which is really right? really beautiful. He has a perspective that he can share with me about me and. Uh, um, and I have enormous respect for him and uh, the woman he's he's chosen to love in his life. I, oh, there's I, nothing better than that. Yeah, it's Just fantastic. Nothing. Yeah, you are such a pleasure to spend time with, Nana. Same here. Really, Gates. you're you're quite a woman, and uh, I'm very happy to know you. And I hope to get to know you better and better. Me too. All right, lots of love, and uh, thank you. Thanks, Gates. Mwah. Mwah. In our next episode with Nana, I start by sharing an unexpected revelation. Please tune in for it. In the meantime, thanks for listening and stay safe. <laughs>